0: They were about ready to go with more big action. Thank you very much, and welcome to Georgia Championship Wrestling. I'm Gordon Solo, your host, and we have quite an hour in store for us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Championship Wrestling at Ringside. This is Vince McMahon, along with wrestling's only living legend, Bruno Sammartino.
1: Welcome to this week's edition of
0: Mid South Wrestling Television. I'm your host, boy Cheers, another outstanding card.
1: Hey guys, and welcome back to the Regional Wrestling Podcast, where we talk the territories. That's right, it's 100% territory talk. And I am your host, Ray Russell, and we be alive, guys, with episode number five this week of the Regional Wrestling Podcast. We're going to start a brand new topic this week, brand new project, all about 1986 and Cowboy Bill Watts' Mid-South Wrestling. No, wait. Make that the Universal Wrestling Federation, the UWF now. The cowboy, he's expanding. And we have a very special guest co-host lined up as we begin to take a trip back in time to the UWF in 1986, and more on that in just a moment. But first, a friendly reminder, you can listen to the Regional Wrestling Podcast as part of the WrestleCopia Podcast Network along with sister shows like the Wrestling Memory Grenade, where we're in the middle of our 1987 in the WWF project. We're just now finishing up April of 87 over there and headed in to the May 2nd edition of the WWF's Saturday Night's Main Event. And it also marks the first NBC special of Saturday Night's Main Event without a match featuring Hulk Hogan. So we'll see how they fare over there. You can also listen to my podcast, Monday Warfare, The Battles Within. It's Raw vs. Nitro as we break down the weekly Monday Night War by taking a look at both what was going on in the ring as well as behind the scenes. And yes, we even dive into those pesky TV ratings. Right now, a new season of Monday Warfare beginning to drop as WCW Nitro has just began their reign of 83 weeks on top. Hall and Nash have arrived and we're just one week out from the infamous 1996 Bash at the Beach pay-per-view, where we will see the inception of the NWO. Fun times ahead on Monday Warfare. And you can listen to all of those shows and more over at the WrestleCopia Podcast Network, located at WrestleCopia.com. That's WrestleCopia.com and everywhere. Your streaming needs are met, from Apple to Spotify, Google and beyond. Also, be sure to follow us on our social media accounts. You can follow us on Twitter at Wrestling Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. Also follow and like us Facebook.com slash Wrestling Grenade. Follow us on social media for all the latest goings-on at the WrestleCopia Podcast Network, and I'm constantly adding old-school video clips and pictures from throughout wrestling history. Please be sure to also subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can find us there at youtube.com slash Grenade, where I'm uploading new footage all the time as I continue to preserve my old VHS collection by converting it all to digital. And now is also a great time to become a WrestleCopia patron You can find us there at Patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. That's Patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. Multiple tiers to choose from. But the $5 all-access tier is where it's at. $5 is going to get you all sorts of gifts, including all of my insanely detailed show notes for, get this, the Wrestling Memory Grenade, Monday Warfare, and now the Regional Wrestling Podcast as well you also receive early access to many of the podcasts here on WrestleCopia. Listen days, sometimes as much as a week earlier than the rest of the listeners. Plus remastered versions of the earliest episodes of The Grenade covering the 1989 NWA project. These remastered versions include enhanced sound quality and new content and conversations originally edited out of the initial broadcast due to time restraints edited right back into the show. But that's not all. You'll also receive digital downloads for your viewing and reading pleasure. And of course, our Patreon-exclusive Watch Along series, covering many past WWF and WCW pay-per-views, Coliseum videos, Saturday Night's main events, Clash of the Champions, and so much more. And all of that for the low, low price of just $5 a month. It's the early access, insanely detailed show notes for three of our podcast shows. Patreon-exclusive Watch Alongs, remastered episodes with new content, digital downloads, and so much more for just $5. No subscription, cancel anytime. show your support, give it a try for a month, and I think you'll like the content we offer, and the best part, every penny of it goes right back in to the WrestleCopia Podcast Network. And guys, I don't mind telling you, we have our annual hosting bills due up here in the month of February, so please help us pay some of the bills to keep the shows like The Grenade, Monday Warfare, and yes, of course, Regional wrestling up and running for the months and the years to come. And now with all of that out of the way, it's time to dive into 1986 and Bill Watts' Universal Wrestling Federation. And anyone who has listened to the Grenade Show or who have listened to the 1977 in the WWF here on Regional Wrestling, you guys know that I'm a stickler for something I like to call setting the stage. And we're going to do that again here this week, setting the stage for 1986 in the UWF by going back and looking at a little of 1985 in the Mid-South. We're going to look at all the talent and champions we'll see heading into the new year. What was happening heading into 86? You'll find out here on today's program. Now, I don't like to just hit the ground running, presuming everyone knows what's going on in advance as we begin to talk about it. I like to think this show brings in a new group of listeners who are using this as a learning tool or maybe even a reference guide. And I don't want anyone scratching their heads. Why is Hacksaw Duggan feuding with Buzz Sawyer? Why is the TV title vacant? When did Ted DiBiase become a babyface again? We'll explain all of that and so much more here this week on the program. And for this special new series on 1986 and the UWF, I wanted to bring on a special guest co-host for the ride. In fact, you can thank this man for this particular subject because when I asked him what he'd be most interested in covering, this topic was at the top of his list and near the top of mine as well. You guys have heard him for over the past three years, along with Mike Sempervivi as part of the Mid-Atlantic Championship Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Roman Gomez to the show. Roman, pleasure to have you here on Regional Wrestling. Thank you very much. Looking forward to talking about
0: the UWF 1986.
1: Yeah, when I heard through the grapevine that you'd be interested in dropping by the show to talk a little bit about the territories, obviously the first thing that came to my mind was the Mid-Atlantic region. But you surprised me in a good way, that is. So I don't want to step on the toes of your other program. You know, you were doing the Mid-Atlantic Championship podcast for so long. So I asked you, what would you be interested in talking about? And and you started rattling off all sorts of territories and eras. I got so excited, brother. And, and one of those that you mentioned, we're doing right here and right now, and that's the UWF in 1986. I know you have very fond memories of that time period.
0: Oh, great time watching it and going to school and, talking to your buddies about it. Of course, they had the three titles, change hands in one episode, which was unheard of back in the day. And uh, UWF 86 was great. You know, I used to be a play-by-play commentator for an independent league. So I always appreciated the announcers. And Jim Ross was just at his peak right then in 1986. And just what a great year, great wrestlers, and just a lot of fond memories of watching the UWF back in the day.
1: Yeah, and a hodgepodge of announcers it was over the years from Boyd Pierce back in the Mid-South. Jim Ross comes in, and even here, as we get going into 86, Joel Watts does his best, and and I put air quotes around does his best here. Poor guy just thrown right to the lions, hosting several episodes of Mid-South.
0: Yeah, and also doing the videos. I mean, those that grew up watching UWF can remember uh, Terry Taylor's freeze frame. Seemed like they showed (laughs) that thing uh, every other week. It
1: seemed like that video was on. Yeah, Watts was, uh, Joel, he got a lot of notoriety, even from Dave Meltzer and really everyone, for changing the business as far as the way music videos were done. His production was uh, second to none. In fact, even when Watts sold to Crockett, Joel actually went and worked for Vince McMahon for a little bit there in 87.
0: Yes, and some
1: people may or may not know that he was actually a
0: referee in a few matches on uh, Mid-South television as well. Going by the name of Joel
1: Armstrong. That's right. Yes, I was trying to remember what the last... I knew it wasn't Watts, but yeah, I I remember that. Joel Armstrong. That's right. Very good. I said we're going to have a fun time here already.
0: Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I can't Uh, wait. All
1: right, guys. So I already explained to you what we're going to do this week. We're going to set the stage for 1986 by kind of looking back at 1985 and get an idea of where everything was going at this point in time. And before we get going, I do apologize to everyone in advance. If there's any background noise this week... Going to do my best to edit it out. I usually try to avoid recording during peak kid hours, but sometimes it's just impossible. I'm Eastern Roman, you're Pacific, and I know we've been trying to get together and get this thing going, so hopefully the listeners will appreciate the conversation and can ignore whatever may take place in the background, as I have absolutely zero control over what a three-year-old and a seven-month-old do or say. And let
0: me also apologize in (laughs) advance. I have a neighbor that's got about four dogs. And when they get going, they can get a little loud, so hopefully they won't end up in the background either.
1: <laughs> all right, so we'll get all of that out of the way, and we'll get rolling here, and I guess we got to start somewhere. So let's start with the babyface side of things. Look at some of the talent on the babyface side heading into 1986, and where better to start than, ho, oh, Saw Jim Duggan. Came into the Mid-South region as a heel in 1982, eventually made the big babyface turn, feuding with former stablemate Ted DiBiase in some crazy matches including the infamous Loser Leaves Town tuxedo, coal miner's glove on a pole, steel cage match back in March of 85. Remember that one? Oh, yeah. the match with the, probably the most stipulations in the history of wrestling. It's odd that it would be Bill Watts that would book that. He seems like he would be a no-nonsense guy. Let's get to the point. Let's have a, a, a well, a dog collar match or a steel cage match, but every gimmick you could think of here, even a tuxedo thrown in on that one.
0: Yeah, I remember they did an angle on TV about who was the best dressed, and they kind of fed off that. And uh, yeah, I never recall a match having so many stipulations like that.
1: <laughs> I had to write it down just to make sure I didn't forget one when we when <laughs> I went over that there. But so Duggan <laughs> quickly became one of the most beloved baby faces in the territory, becoming Mister Americana after feuding with Nikolai Volkov and Crusher D'Arso. Eventually, though, arguably replaced the Junkyard Dog as the most over face in the company. Not saying he was as over as JYD, just saying he became the top baby face at one point here in the Mid-South, for those who don't know, before after the dog's departure over to the WWF back in 84. And what a lot of
0: people that may not be familiar with Duggan at that time was he was actually a good worker in 86. He had a lot of really good matches. He wasn't the, the character that, you know, the fans grew to know and love in the WWF, you know, as King Duggan and kind of the goofball. He was kind of a no-nonsense type of guy in the UWF in 1986.
1: Yeah, and it's amazing the transition that Duggan makes when he goes to the WWF. Over on my grenade show right now, I'm doing the WWF 1987 project, so I've just seen Jim come in. He's starting his feud with Nikolai and the Iron Sheik, and he's adapted that cartoon character almost flawlessly. Like, yeah, I'm cool with this. You mean I don't have to cut my head every night and and, and get hit with a steel chair? Okay.
0: And also the sheep herders, you know, who I'm sure we'll talk about. Oh yeah. Same thing. They went to the WWF and you can't blame them for going to that easier
1: style. They were making more money and not having a, not having a blade every night. No, you can't blame them at all. But Duggan's still here for the entire year of nineteen eighty-six, and he went on to work quite a bit over the last couple years heading into eighty-six against the likes of good friend Dr. Death Steve Williams, Hercules Hernandez, Kamala, even teaming with cowboy Bill Watts earlier here in eighty-five. Later on in the year, he beats the NWA world champion Ric Flair under disqualification back in October before moving into his current blood feud with one mad dog, Buzz Sawyer. It initially appeared Duggan might be paired against Dick Slater back at the beginning of the fall, Roman, but Slater had higher aspirations gunning for Butch Reed's North American title, so Duggan was stuck dealing with Slater's quote-unquote bodyguard, for lack of a better term, and Buzz Sawyer's his buddy, Buzz Sawyer, and it was to be a match pitting Hacksaw against El Corsario. That's the masked Savio Vega. We'll talk about him later on in this episode. But it was supposed to be Duggan versus Corsario on TV, but it never takes place, as Hacksaw is jumped by Dick Slater and Buzz Sawyer on TV, leading to Duggan's then-girlfriend and now-wife, Deborah Duggan, in the ring. She jumps on the back of Buzz Sawyer, trying to get him off of her man, when Buzz drives her backwards into the turnbuckles, and if you thought it was an accident... Then he drops the big elbow across the back of her head, KOing Deborah in the process, and the feud from there was on.
0: Yeah, Sawyer was a no-nonsense type of guy, and he is legendary for abusing enhancement workers in Georgia and Mid-South. And uh, it's not surprising that he would do something like that to the wife of Jim Duggan.
1: No, yeah. And uh, fast forward just a little bit in this feud, and I'm going to get back to Deborah here in a little bit. November 11th, a no-disqualification match. This was once... On the WWE Network, I'm not sure if it made the move over to the Peacock or not, but it's a Mid-South House show featuring Jim Duggan versus Buzz Sawyer in a no-DQ match. Duggan hits his spear finisher, sending Buzz Sawyer through the ropes out to the floor. Buzz decides to take the count out, but post-match, Sawyer charges back into the ring, chokes away at Hacksaw, but Duggan comes battling back. The brawl continues, drawing out a bunch of the wrestlers, trying to pull them apart. They finally separate the two guys, but they get at it again back in the dressing room. Even Duggan swearing right on camera, kiss my fucking ass, tough guy. Well, maybe he didn't say tough guy, but Sawyer screaming right back at him. What wild stuff for the time. Yes, that was, like you said, for that time, it w- it was wild. Uh,
0: stuff you see now might not phase anybody, you know, because they've seen it a thousand times. But back then, it was rare to hear cuss words or locker room brawls or kind of behind the scenes stuff like that. It was wasn't something that you saw a lot of.
1: No, yeah, the the backstage brawls always felt, well, Watts did a good job. I think Dusty, when he was booking in Crockett, even though, whenever they did it, they always made it feel very realistic because the cameras didn't normally go backstage. And if they did, it was for a promo or something like that. So whenever you got those backstage brawls, which did not happen all too often back then, it was always a cool thing.
0: Yes, yes, you felt like you were getting a little something extra, a little more bang for your buck, so to speak.
1: So this was just a phenomenal angle, and the matches just kept going on and on between the two. So you had guys like DiBiase who thrived at wrestling, but we had guys who could do a little wrestling, like a hacksaw Jim Duggan, but at the end of the day, they could fight. And that's what this feud was, a damn near every night, a fight to the death. And the realism of it just added so much to this. Watts
0: was always a big believer in making things look good. He wanted his product to look good. He is notorious for telling wrestlers, if you get in a fight with the fan, you better win.
1: That's you right, know, or, and or, or you're out so the door for
0: him. Exactly, you know. So for him to almost like encourage this type of wild behavior, you know, that's that's
1: right up Watts's alley. So cowboy, you know, he would go off on his tirades sometimes, talking about things that had nothing to do with wrestling, going to biddness for him. CF50 wheel on commentary, but at the same time, what I love most about Bill Watts, and especially on commentary, is it seemed like he constantly asked himself. Why does this make sense? And he explains to the people why this makes sense, because there's a lot of times, just in the first couple months of TV here in 86, I'm asking myself, why? And if Bill Watts is on commentary, he explains it to me, and I go, oh, okay. Even though that's kind of silly, it still makes sense, coming from the Cowboy.
0: Yes, Watts was a great explainer. He could explain anything. If a guy did a dropkick and missed a guy by five feet and the guy still sold it, Watts would have an explanation for it, you know, saying that the defensive wrestler was trying to get out of the way of the drop kick or something like he had a great way of explaining things to make things incredible
1: yeah i you know i've caught that a few times i've even caught joel doing that a couple times no doubt he's went to to daddy's school yes yes no
0: doubt who he who his influence was
1: right so my notes for this feud between buzz sawyer and hacksaw before we move on to another hacksaw i wrote and what can be referred to as pure unadulterated violence Duggan has stated in his matches with Buzz Sawyer that the finishes were works, but the matches were very real. He also says that Sawyer's elbow drop on Deborah was unnecessarily stiff and legit hurt her. So they beat the living shit out of each other, Roman. Coal miners' glove matches, no DQ, dog collar matches, boxing matches, I quit, tape fist. They literally brutalized each other for months here. And there, there's some of their gimmick matches on YouTube right now as well. The dog collar match, for example, a lot of them out there. You know, I, I ask everyone listening to go check them out. Just wild, crazy stuff.
0: Yeah, and it's the type of stuff that you could see over and over again in the crowd. You know, when if the, if the wrestlers are having a great match and the crowd's just kind of sitting on their hands, it, it takes a little something away. But back then, the crowds were hot. They believed what they were seeing. So you could see a Duggan and a Sawyer go week after week and,
1: gimmick match after gimmick match and still be excited to see it yeah because like you said everybody took it seriously even if there maybe was a little question if everything was real they really believed in that mid-south territory that's for sure but those matches you couldn't question if they were real they were really hitting each other at points no doubt about that but i agree with you every as long as one of those guys or both of those guys were still standing it made sense to bring it back again because these guys aren't done with each other
0: no, and they uh, they asked no quarter, and they gave no quarter. I mean, they, they gave it their all when they were out there, and, and I think a big part of that had to do with the fact that Watts was their boss. You know, he would have settled for
1: nothing less than that. Oh, no, yeah, and that's what made him a good boss. Now there's other reasons why he might not have been a not-so-good boss, but he gets the nod there for, for rea- realism anyway. Uh, we're going to move on to another Hacksaw, like I said, but expect more from Buzz Sawyer and Hacksaw Duggan moving into 1986. Right now, we're going to talk about the natural, I'm sorry, I've been doing WWF 87 for too long, Hacksaw Butch Reed here, the current North American champion as we head out of 1985, heading into the new year. Butch Reed, he's been in and out of Mid-South the past several years as a babyface, as a heel, one of the many and probably the most realistic African-American guys to fill the shoes of the junkyard dog. Watts always looking for another black athlete to fill the shoes of JYD, though no one ever truly does. Reed sometimes formed a tag team here in 85 with fellow namesake Hacksaw Duggan, and he works here in 85 against the likes of guys like Kamala before beating Dutch Mantell for the TV title back in July. Then he goes on to do a one-hour Broadway draw with the NWA world champion Ric Flair at the Superdome in August, eventually appends Dick Murdoch for the North American title in October, forcing Reed to relinquish the TV title and remain the North American champion heading into 86, working matches with Dick Slater Headed into the new year. And that all starts with Slater trying to collect a $50,000 bounty on the head of Butch Reed, set by NWA World Champion Ric Flair, who feared defending the title again against Reed after their match at the Superdome in August. Shortly after a match where Reed beat Flair in an, in an impromptu non title match on TV, Flair and Slater stuff Pile drove Reed into the mat and put him out of commission for the short term, costing Reed his world title shot against the Nature Boy. He'd be looking for revenge, and Slater would be looking for his North American title after Reed's return.
0: You know, the amazing thing is you saying that Flair and Reed had an hour match. Right. And I picture somebody like a Tony Atlas, you know, that had a similar build to Butch Reed. I would not want to see Flair and Atlas for an hour. No. But Flair and Reed, that would have been a blast to see for an hour. Because Reed, to me, always came off as a badass, and a big part of it was, The fact that he had beat the aforementioned Buzz Sawyer. I remember as a kid, you know, when he beat him in Georgia Mm -hmm. in a hair match and Buzz had to wear the headgear, you know, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, Butch Reed beat Buzz Sawyer? This guy's amazing, you know? So Reed, another guy, I've used the word a thousand times already, but credible. You know, you believed Reed's stuff. He was great as a face, great as a heel, and in the ring, Reed was solid.
1: Yeah, it did did not hurt that he had a great look, but like you said, he could actually go in the ring with the right opponent, specifically Ric Flair, obviously one of those opponents. Oh,
0: definitely, definitely. And uh, there is a Flair versus Reed match, I want to say, on one of those old
1: Monster of the Mat videotapes back in the day. So if anybody wants to see that, or maybe it's up on YouTube. So Butch Reed right now in the middle of a feud with Dick Slater, though we won't see Reed very long here heading into the new year. We will talk about that on the next episode, no doubt. But for now, we're going to move on to yet another babyface in the territory, one by the name of Jake the Snake Roberts. He leaves the world-class territory in January 1985 and comes into Mid-South as a heel. Working against the likes of Brad Armstrong and Terry Taylor, eventually Jake forms a team with the Barbarian, as in John Nord, the Barbarian, in April of 85, and they spend the summer working some matches with the Rock and Roll Express, but then chasing the tag team titles with champions Ted DiBiase and Dr. Death in a heel versus heel dynamic. Now, initially it was Ted and Doc cutting the babyface promos leading into those matches, but the fans clearly supported Jake and Nord instead. Yeah, and the thing is, you could not deny Jake's greatness. Whatever side of the fence he
0: was on, you could not deny it. You know, his no. his intensity, his promos, his in-ring work, Jake was somebody that anybody could appreciate, regardless of what side of the fence he was on.
1: Yeah, and I think that was like a detriment to him, but it also hurt him in a way because he was so good as a heel, but the fans didn't want to hate him. And so they wind up turning him here. We're going to get to that in just a minute. But then Vince has to do the same damn thing in 87 in the WWF.
0: Right, exactly. You know, it's it's hard to hate somebody that you admire. You know, (laughs) it's like no matter how many times they tried to turn the Road Warriors heel or whatnot,
1: it was just people were going to like him. And same thing with Jake. Yeah, it just wasn't going to work. And and obviously, Watts noticed this over the summer. Like I said, they paired Nord and Jake against DiBiase and Doc. Doc and DiBiase were supposed to be the faces in all of this, but no, it was Jake's team that were getting the cheers. So, Watts, what does he do when he realizes what, what's going down? He places Jake on TV in a TV match against another heel, the Masked Nightmare. Jake picks up a win by a DQ here at a set of the TV tapings in late August Also unmasking the nightmare in the process, leading to the nightmare stablemate Lord Humongous hitting the ring, and it appeared Jake's buddy Nord the Barbarian was going to go toe-to-toe with Lord Humongous, but instead it was Nord turning on Jake Roberts in a fun out-of-nowhere angle. Really didn't see that one coming when I watched it for the first time.
0: Yeah, I I didn't see that either, and it it shows the brilliance of Watts. He knew fans were going to cheer for Jake, so... Let's give him even more reason to cheer for Jake.
1: Yeah. Watts liked his monster heels, not necessarily a thing he had to have, but he kept Nord heel, but he made Jake the babyface. So Jake had two big monsters to work with uh, initially here, immediately after his babyface turn. So like I said, much like his future in the WWF, Jake getting cheers as a heel. So he goes baby face and works his former partner, the barbarian all throughout the month of September before John Nord does what Nord does best Roman and, randomly disappears from the territory
0: (laughs) and the thing is nord should have thanked his lucky stars that he had anything to do with jake you know to get that rub from jake was actually a good career thing for nord at that time
1: yeah because it was quite a makeshift hodgepodge team it took me a little bit to get used to it and accept it as a tag team because it was just the dynamics were so different
0: exactly exactly but uh if i was nord i would have been like a sponge i would have soaked up everything jake said and did because what an architect. What a, what a great uh, mind Jake had for the business.
1: Yeah, but, you know, John Nord was John Nord. He, he did what he was going to do. I mean, this is a guy who was working for the WWF, went over to SummerSlam in England in 92, and then when the plane left to go back home, he said, yeah, I'm just going to stay here for a little while longer. Gets suspended and comes back for a month or so, and he's, he's out the door. That's John Nord. Yeah,
0: yeah. And then uh, <laughs> in later years, I just saw him as a poor man's bruiser Brody, you know, when he went to the, AWA years later.
1: Well, that's still better than Yukon, uh, John Nord, with Flapjack, Scott Norton, and the AWA. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> what were S- they thinking? Yeah, well, it was uh, maybe Vern had very early dementia. Could be. So Jake was working against his former partner, the Barbarian, but Nord leaves the company. So the snake pivots to feuding with Lord Humongous for the remainder of 1985. The story there was Humongous was immune to the DDT. Because of his hockey mask, it protected his skull. Pretty cool stuff leading to Jake wearing his own hockey mask and also finding ways to get Humongous to remove his mask so that he could finally deliver the DDT. Just a tremendous psychology there from Jake once again.
0: Yeah, Jake was just always great at psychology. And uh, something I remember him saying is that how different his interview style was, that he would make people in the living room, like get up off their couch to turn up the volume. Just because Jake would talk in that quiet voice, you right. know, it was just something different. Jake May- had a way of always standing out, no matter where he went.
1: Yeah, always made you pay attention. You always wanted to. What is this guy saying? He's not ranting and raving, talking about I'm going to kick your ass. Sorry, I had to channel my my grandfather. That's that was. He wasn't a wrestling fan when I was growing up, but that was his impression of wrestling when back in the Dick the Bruiser days and things. That's what, <laughs> that's that's how he saw yes. promos, and that's technically how they were, minus the curse words. But Jake wasn't like that. He never was.
0: No, he he wasn't. Uh, and I always appreciated guys like that. Somebody that was a little bit different, you know. Bachwinkle was like that. Some others, and that's part of the reason that they became
1: legends, because they knew how to be different and, and to stand out in their own subtle way. Right. So Jake works with Nord. He's working with Humongous here. But Jeff Van Camp, the guy who's portraying the Humongous character, he prepares to leave the business. And Jake finishes out the last couple weeks of the year taking on Sir Oliver Humperdinck, the manager of Humongous, before beginning a new chapter with Dick Slater in the new year. I'm,
0: I'm okay that I didn't get to see Jake versus uh, Humperdinck.
1: <laughs> you know, that's, that's not
0: my idea of a dream match.
1: I just keep picturing one of those Lou Albano matches where he comes in the ring and does a, does a gusher and leaves, I, I, I would imagine.
0: Yeah, you would hope they would be short matches, two <laughs> minutes or less.
1: And I should note, as we head into 86, Jake is slated to take on Dick Slater in the finals of the TV title tournament on January the 1st, so we're going to talk all about that next time here on the show. So we'll move on for now, though. We're going to talk about Ted DiBiase. To some degree, DiBiase worked the Tri-States and then eventually the Mid-South Territories at some point pretty much every year since 1975. But by 1980, he was working on top as a babyface versus Paul Orndorff and The Grappler, continued into 81 against the Iron Sheik, Bob Roop, taking us into 1982 when DiBiase did The Unthinkable. Donning his new infamous loaded black glove, turning heel on the good friend Junkyard Dog in order to become the North American champion in June of 82, and he never looked back. While DiBiase dabbled in other territories and tours of Japan, he had a spot in the Mid-South as a heel main eventer from that point forward. Eventually creating the Rat Pack with Matt Bourne and Hacksaw Duggan, dubbing himself The Big Cheese, Cowboy loved to say that, before forming an alliance with Dr. Death in January of 85. Now, they dominated the singles and tag team scene all year here, beating the Rock and Roll Express for the tag team titles in the month of May. The heel team eventually lose the belts when DiBiase goes to Japan and he's replaced by Bruiser Bob Sweetan. And it's Dr. Death and Sweetan losing the belts to newcomers as a tag team, Al Perez and Wendell Cooley, with Sweetan doing the job. DiBiase returns from Japan and the duo attempted to get the belts back when an opportunity presented itself to Ted Roman. With number one contender to the NWA title Butch Reed out with the aforementioned neck injury, Ted DiBiase was announced as the new number one contender to challenge flair for the NWA title on TV in the month of November. But this didn't sit well with the babyface and DiBiase's mentor, Dick Murdoch. Dicky felt as the last North American champion before Reed, it should be him that deserved that title shot. But DiBiase refused to give up his shot, pointing out to Murdoch that Ted had been North American champion more times and for a lot longer than anyone else in the promotion. Ted waited a long time for this opportunity, and he's going to take it. Murdoch then blasted DiBiase with a sucker punch to start a fight. And Ric Flair, coming from behind with a knee, sends Ted DiBiase out to the floor, where Murdoch then sent Ted skull first into the steel ring post, busting him open with a huge laceration. I can hear Dusty now. Make it good, baby. And good it was, brother, because an insane amount of blood spills from the head of DiBiase everywhere, all over the concrete in seemingly record time.
0: That was an absolutely phenomenal angle, the way everything was done. The jealousy of Murdoch, you know, it turned Teddy babyface. And then Watts coming out and saying that Mid-South was not behind the continuation of the match because Teddy was bleeding and bandaged and, you know, and that he'd want to no part of it. And uh, I believe Watts even said something like uh, for the parents, you know, if you're squeamish or your kids might not want to see that, like he really set the stage to make you think that something dangerous was going to happen, so to speak. And then Teddy went out there with the heart of a lion and continued to fight. And just one of the most infamous TV angles, probably in wrestling history.
1: Right, and it lasted the entire hour. That was what was so awesome about it. Early in the show, that part of the angle takes place. Then DiBiase was aided out of the Irish McNeil's Boys Club as the announcers questioned DiBiase's ability to challenge Flair later in the show here for the world title. The cocky NWA champion Flair figured he had the night off there until a bloody and bandaged DiBiase returns for the matchup. And a hell of a match it was leading to Flair countering DiBiase's figure four, kicking him over the top rope, where DiBiase was then counted out. Flair retained, but it wasn't over yet, as you just pointed out. Dick Murdoch returns to ringside post-match and delivers a brain buster on the concrete on DiBiase. As God is my witness, he's broken in half, I believe Jim Ross would say here, or at least the announcer sold it that way anyway. What a sight. What a disgusting move by Murdoch, and as you already said, too, in my opinion, one of the greatest show long angles in pro wrestling history. And we get a double turn out of it in the process. DiBiase goes babyface, Murdoch goes heel. You couldn't help but
0: root for DiBiase after everything he went through. And DiBiase was a great technician, he mm. was always solid in the ring. But now he's showing he's got the heart of a lion, you know, to come back when most wrestlers wouldn't have continued. You know, he comes up. Spirit of 76, bandaged, bloody, you know, and still fought and -hmm. gave it everything he had. It was incredible.
1: So, DiBiase and Murdoch are both subsequently written off TV after this angle. DiBiase, of course, selling the injury. Murdoch then, quote-unquote, suspended for 45 days. In truth, they went to work for All Japan and New Japan, respectively. But when they return, the feud will continue on. And I'll have a little more on DiBiase later when he returns here in late December, But yeah, here we go. Another feud started. And as you pointed out, DiBiase, people love to hate him. It wasn't like Jake. They loved to boo DiBiase, but they respected him as a wrestler. No matter what, he was always one of the top stars in the company. He scored a lot of solid wins as a heel and as a babyface over some of the best names that ever came through the territory. So DiBiase, even as a heel, was well-respected. So it didn't take a whole lot. But hell, the story wrote itself. Uh, You were going to cheer for him no matter what. But like you said, Spirit of 76, it was tremendous watching DiBiase come back out bandaged and bloody. I want my title match, and he gave it his all. Loses by a countout, and then you think it's over, and they add a little more to it. Dickie Murdoch makes sure he's going to turn heel and turn DiBiase babyface in the process. So really great angle, really great stuff. If you guys haven't seen that, I really recommend you go check it out. It's on YouTube. It's probably on, I, I assume, maybe somewhere on the Peacock as well.
0: As great as that was to get DiBiase over as a face, it also showed how dastardly of a heel that Murdoch could be. Right. I mean, it's not enough he attacked him once. But then to do it again after he wrestled Ric Flair, the dirtiest player in the game, he he roughed him up again, you know, and did a number on DB Aussie. I mean, that really cemented Murdoch as a big-time heel, that that angle did.
1: Yeah, and I always felt like Dick Murdoch was kind of like Jake the Snake in the fact that when he turned back heel, he was always a heel. We just liked him. And I don't mean he was cheating, but we just knew he had that, that nasty side to him. And it came out here. Oh, without a doubt. So, DiBiase turns face. And that means, I guess, Dr. Death, Steve Williams' his tag team partner, going to turn face here. Now, Dr. Death, outside of some trips to Japan, Mid-South has been Doc's home since his debut in the offseason at Oklahoma University back in 82. Doc, initially a bland but dangerous baby face, eventually turns heel and, as mentioned, aligns himself with DiBiase here. At the start of '85, Doc essentially becomes a de facto babyface and a partner of DiBiase. As we move forward, Doctor Death's gonna watch the back of his buddy Ted DiBiase.
0: I always thought Doc and DiBiase were phenomenal tag team and really underrated, in my opinion. I mean, they were—they just clicked. They were a cool team to watch, you know, as babyfaces. I was always kind of partial to the heels, but I did not mind Doc and DiBiase as babyfaces.
1: No, and I'll say this too. Uh, If there was money to be made in a traveling, a touring tag team like there is the world champion, if there was really a touring world tag team champions, those guys would have been great at it because they could have fought any style. They could have worked heel or face. It it would have been awesome to see Doc and DiBiase traveling around the territories.
0: Well, yeah. And then the experience they had in Japan, you know, learning different styles over there. Yeah, they could have worked anybody and made it look good.
1: We move on. Yet another name headed back into the territory is Terry Taylor. This will be Terry's second run in the company. He came in in January of 84 and left in July of 85, there for over a year and a half. And he'll be back here in November of 85 after only four months away. And he'll be here pretty much all of 1986 as well. Terry Taylor won the TV title back in January, but he had to relinquish it in March when he became the North American champion for a couple of months. Obviously, Bill Watts, a fan of Terry Taylor's work, he's back here just in time for 1986 with another big push in play, even giving Terry the book. Terry Taylor's actually going to be the booker here for the first couple months anyway to start the new year. You know, and it's a shame
0: that he will forever be known as the Red Rooster, Yeah, but for those of you that aren't real familiar with his work, go back and watch some of his stuff in UWF, Mid-South. Not only was he an amazing baby face, you know, the fans got behind him, the women loved him. He was a great heel. He was a really cocky, arrogant heel. You know, his stuff with Chris Adams was, was top-notch, and uh, Taylor was just a really solid talent. It's a shame he'll forever be known as the Red Rooster.
1: Yeah, and they always say he was a natural heel, and not because he was a dirty or nasty guy, but because he was a cocky guy in real life. That was just his personality, or at least the way he came off. But Terry Taylor was just always a tremendous uh, wrestler in the ring. I always loved watching his work. Even when he was gi- gifted those, those terrible gimmicks in WCW, you still had to wrestle in WCW, whereas the Red Rooster not so much. So even when he was gifted the tailor-made man or Terrence Taylor, he was still going out there and putting on good matches as Terry Taylor. I, I think back to Halloween Havoc 91, a throwaway match on the card. Beautiful Bobby Eaton versus Terry Taylor, just for the hell of it. Fantastic match.
0: And and the thing is, Bobby was one of those guys that could wrestle a broomstick and make it look good. And like you said, it was kind of a throwaway match. Let's just put these two in there. it's like those are two tremendous talents, you know, and they they're capable of having a great match on any night.
1: Yeah, I agree. You wanna you wanna fill fifteen minutes of your pay per view time with that match? I'm there all day for it. Exactly. So we'll move on to a tag team by the name of the Fantastics. That's Tommy Rogers and Bobby Fulton. Essentially the team who replaced the Rock and Roll Express here in the Mid South as the good looking baby duo in the territory who were crazy over with the fans, especially the young ladies fantastic spent the first half of 85 in Dallas before returning to the mid South in July. They left here again in November to work in the Memphis territory for a few months, but they'll be back here before too long.
0: And the Fantastics, like you said, a lot of people kind of look at them as rock and roll express, maybe knockoffs or, or, you know, the, the B team or whatever, but they were tremendous talents. And, uh, the women loved him, two good-looking guys, and Tommy Rogers had one of the best drop kicks you will ever see. He he could he was a junior champion in, in Memphis and everything, but Rogers is one of those guys individually, did not have uh, great promo skills, but was absolutely
1: phenomenal in the ring. Oh, my God, and I'm glad you brought him up because if you didn't, I was going to. Tommy Rogers was one of my favorite guys. I always wanted him to break out and do something else. I get because of his size, it was never really going to happen, which is unfortunate because he was one of the greatest worker. I would love to have seen if they could have somehow managed. You remember when Ricky Morton had that program with Ric Flair? I don't know if the Fantastics ever got over to the level where they could have done that, but I would have loved to see me a Tommy Rogers and Ric Flair match, just one time.
0: Yeah, yeah, that would have been great. And uh, I want to say that they did wrestle. I might have something with them in Georgia on tv or something but yeah tommy rogers it it would have been fun to see him get a major singles push
1: yeah and and like i said after a few months in memphis we'll see the fantastics back here in the mid south by the end of march so i can't wait for that almost feels like a trade for the bruise brothers both teams seem to come and go at the same time periods when the fantastics leave mid south enter the bruise brothers and that's the team of pork chop cash and mad dog boyd the Bruises arrive here in early November 85 and stay on through February versus the likes of the Nightmare and Eddie Gilbert, a few bouts with the Guerreros, then a match with the Sheepherders on the way out of the territory, and they'll eventually be back in the Memphis territory themselves. I love the original Bruise Brothers, pork Porkchop Cash and Troy Graham the Dream Machine, but Mad Dog Boyd, not so much. Yeah, I was going to say, this version of the
0: Bruise Brothers never really did anything for me. You know, they had the the cool theme music and whatnot, but just I don't know. Somehow they just didn't do anything for me.
1: It, it was so funny if you go back and watch the old mid south. The first time the Bruise Brothers come in, the first promo they cut is it's going to be Porkchop Cash and the Dream Machine headed in. But then we get that video where the Dream Machine's laid up. He's he's got the cast on his leg. He's that's where he's injured his leg, and unfortunately, it was never the same again after that. And Bill Watts, the the sell of sale of goods was supposed to be for. Porkchop Cash and the Dream Machine initially, but he winds up getting Porkchop Cash and Mad Dog Boyd, but apparently he didn't care enough to to not let them come back here at the tail end of 85, moving into 86, I guess. He just needed some bodies on the show.
0: And the Dream Machine, talk about an underrated individual, you oh know, it, his promos were very Dusty-like, you know, yeah, and anybody yeah. that's heard him talk, and te- I mean, if you close your eyes, it's almost like you're listening to Dusty.
1: It really is like you're listening to Dusty in some ways, but it was still his own job, you know, like the things he said he did so much heel work see we didn't get to see a lot of dusty on video. i didn't there was a lot of heel dusty out there, so you don't get a whole lot of heel dusty promos and it was almost like a heel dusty cutting promos every week I, when the dream machine was a heel, i mean
0: oh exactly yeah it, it was it was fun to he had he had charisma, no doubt,
1: yeah, and so like I said, unfortunately, he gets a A bad knee injury, and he's out for a while. He tries to make a comeback, doesn't do so well, and he's eventually gone before before the late 80s. We'll go on to another name here. Brett Wayne Sawyer, the legit brother of Buzz Sawyer, had memorable stints in Georgia and Portland before this, arrives just after Christmas here in 1985, and will stick around through August of 86. Brett, working at a level above the preliminaries, but doesn't get much higher than that, though he does get some random surprise wins every now and then, they at least try to protect Brett to some degree.
0: Yeah, you know, Brett wasn't bad, but he definitely benefited of having the last name of Sawyer. I think if he did not have that last name, he just would have been another guy on the roster.
1: Oh, no, no doubt about it. You know, I just watched that. I love the way the Cowboy explains why Brett Sawyer's a babyface and buzzes a heel. Just another thing that Bill Watts is sitting there on commentary, and he's like, I'm sure people are wondering this. So I'm going to explain it my way. And I have those notes. We'll talk about that when we get into TV, but it's just really interesting because they're acknowledging that these guys are brothers because Bill Watts sells it. Like you've seen these guys team up before on WTBS. So I'm not going to insult your intelligence and pretend like this guy, you know, is not related to this guy over here, but I will tell you why they're on opposite ends of the fence, but yet still brothers and they still get along.
0: Bill Watts proving once again, why he was the great explainer. You know, because like you said, people would know they both have the same last name. You know, people had seen them on TBS. And even before then, in in Portland, they had teamed together, you know. So it wasn't a surprise they were brothers. But Watts always wanted to make things credible. So he did a good job of explaining it.
1: All right, let's look at Al Perez next. Uh, After a brief stint in early 85 in Puerto Rico, teaming with Joe Savoldi, Perez heads to the Mid-South Territory in July as a singles competitor. He's eventually partnered with Wendell Cooley at the end of August and in their very first match together, they win the Mid-South Tag Team titles from Dr. Death and Bob Sweetan, who was again subbing for Ted DiBiase. So over the course of the next couple months after that, they battle a variety of makeshift teams before DiBiase returns to the company in October and attempts to regain what he never really lost. Perez and Cooley abruptly lose the titles to Eddie Gilbert and the Nightmare in November and Cooley immediately disappears from the Mid-South Territory. Now, we're going to talk more about Cooley here in just a second, but I want to get your opinions first on Al Perez. Al Perez was one of
0: those guys that I always thought should have be been better. He had a good look, uh, a good build. He, he was solid in the ring. He just couldn't cut good promos. You know, he had Gary Hart as his manager a lot. But I look at Al Perez, and I'm like, there was just something missing. But he looked like he had the tools to, to be a superstar.
1: Yeah, I always backed Al Perez as a kid growing up throughout the 80s. Every time he randomly popped into a territory, which he never seemed to stay very long. He'd be on prime time in the WWF a couple times around the beginning of 1990. The NWA uh, left there abruptly in in the uh, early part of 89 after refusing, uh, if you believe the story, refusing to lose to Ric Flair. He says, I'll job to him if he can beat me in a shoot. And and then they say, you know what? We don't need you here anymore. And then supposedly he was going to go off and work for Dusty's PWF territory in Florida there in 89, but Perez was his own worst enemies in a lot of ways. I agree with you. It wasn't a great promo, but I loved him anyway. And as a Mark kid, 12 years old or whatever I was global wrestling federation, I'm sure you remember them. Yep. They came out of the scene in 1991 and immediately start all these random tournaments right out of the, right out of the gate in July. And Al mm-hmm. Perez is one of the many big names that they bring in for these tournaments. And when I see him there in my 12 year old Mark mind, I'm like, yes, this is it, because I can see all the guys around him and and the pecking order is kinda lower here in global than it was in the WWF or the, the WCW. So I'm like, I know this guy's gonna thrive here. He's gonna be the champion, he's gonna be the number one guy. I got so excited, and then you never really see him again. So I was so bummed. I thought for sure this was it. Finally Al Perez's big moment was gonna happen and then he was gone again pretty much forever.
0: See, I, I thought like Perez and Cooley were kind of unusual because. Mm-hmm. Perez, I saw something in, but Cooley, I never saw anything in. And just for them to be the tag team champions, I was, that blew my mind back then. And I look back now and I'm like, wow, that was definitely a big blunder on the, on the Cowboy Bill Watts's re- record or whatever. Cause I just,
1: I just don't see Perez and Cooley as credible tag team champions. No. Yeah. It just came out. I feel like Watts was trying to create his own rock and roll express. She was two young, yes. good looking guys. That's what I feel like. Watts kept getting these other tag teams from other territories. You know what? Screw it. I'm gonna make my own here. I see something in these guys. Perez, like, you know, like you said, I always always supported him. I never understood the window Cooley thing. I never under and I apologize to all the Alabama listeners out there. I do realize he was the shit down there at one point here in the nineteen eighties and whatnot. I had a friend that I used to talk to all the time online through AOL back in those days, and he would just tell me all these stories about him and his buddies in high school, how much they loved Wendell Cooley down there in Continental.
0: I guess they have a little bit of a following in Continental. I have seen some of the stuff down there, but I I just didn't see anything special about him. I I didn't see him as a guy that would put butts in the seats, as they used to say.
1: Oh, yeah. No, I I agree with you. So Cooley came into Mid-South in the month of May of 85 as Rick Casey, for a handful of matches before being renamed Wendell Cooley, he gets a TV match with the NWA champion Ric Flair obviously on the losing end there, but made to look at least competent as an enhancement guy, as maybe somebody the fans would want to support, maybe back him a little bit. Cooley works the underneath a lot throughout the summer, jobbing to everyone from the likes of Dr. Death to El Corsario, until the tag title shot in late August. Out of nowhere, as mentioned, Perez and Cooley win the titles. This is the first time Cooley's getting a real push. He wins the title. And as mentioned, they dropped the belts in November and Cooley's just gone straight away before popping up in Memphis two weeks later is Rick Casey again with a pack of skull in his tight jeans. So I wonder what happened there. <laughs> Have you ever heard anything about the abrupt departure of Wendell Cooley, who was clearly getting this tag title run with Al Perez? Like I said, it felt like it was going to be Watts's Rock and Roll Express, if you will. And then out of nowhere, they just dropped the belts to Gilbert and Nightmare, who weren't really getting pushed like that. And then Cooley's gone the same night. We just don't hear about him ever again in the Mid-South. Yeah, I never heard anything
0: behind the scenes as why Cooley left or anything. And not to be mean, but I really didn't miss him when he was gone. You know, to me, he had no impact on Mid-South or,
1: you know, later on the UWS. To me, the only thing that bummed me at it, because I really didn't want to, I felt like he was holding Al Perez down. I felt like if they were going to do a tag team, I wish they had found somebody better for Perez to team with. But when he left, the only thing that bummed me out was that, oh, my God, now Al Perez is back to square one. Now they're going to have to come up with something else for Al Perez to do. Like I said, I was a big fan of his back then, so just kind of a bummer to see that he lost his tag team partner out of the blue like that.
0: Yeah, and and I, I think at some point Watts had to realize, like, okay, this was a makeshift team, and just the fans weren't buying it. I, I don't think uh, even the fans bought them as believable tag team champions, especially when you got guys like Doc and DiBiase in the territory. You know, it just – Perez and Cooley, it just it just didn't work.
1: Right. So we're going to close out the babyface side with by discussing a de facto babyface, at least on his way out of the company here in 85. That's Bruiser Bob Sweetan, a longtime Tri-States and Mid-South guy before having that monster run in San Antonio, returns in the summer of 85 to fill DiBiase's void. With Ted off to Japan, Sweetan comes in, subs in that tag team title match. They lose the belts, does he and Dr. Death, to Perez and Cooley. DiBiase returns from Japan in October to learn that somehow he had lost the tag team titles, immediately turning on Bob Sweetan, thus turning Sweetan babyface, sort of. Ted beats him on the house shows all around the loop for about a month, and Bob, already in his mid 40s at this point, is done with the big time territories once and for all. And honestly, based on some of the publicly known criminal charges, it was none too soon. Not a good human being is Bob Sweetan.
0: No, it, he he was or isn't it wasn't you know but it just at that time we we didn't know that you know so right. as a fan I I liked Sweet Sweeten's promos in Southwest Championship Wrestling yeah. he looked like a wrestler you know he, he was uh, he was somebody that I liked listening to on the mic and everything but yeah sadly you find out years later what an absolute scumbag you know deplorable human being he turned out to be yeah
1: you know you hear like you said we didn't know these things back then. I didn't find these things out until the internet days, obviously, you know, uh, same thing with rock and roll Buck Zumoff as a kid. We just exactly. had fun. Now, I never supported rock and roll Buck Zumoff. We thought he was a complete idiot, but we loved making fun of him. And, you know, <laughs> that's where it began and ended. He was kind of like Urkel, you know, you just kind of had fun making fun of him and you went on with your day. But then you learn these other things like, wow, there's a whole other side to this.
0: Exactly. You know, and, and it's crazy for the longest time, you know, rock and r- roll Buck Zumoff was a baby face and, you know, every, people loved him and whatnot. And who knew behind the scenes what he was really
1: like? Yeah. So that concludes the baby face side of things. We're going to move over to the heels and look at a few of these guys as well. We're going to start off. We already kind of covered everything with him. So we'll talk a little bit here about Mad Dog Buzz Sawyer arrives in the Mid-South Territory in September of 85, destroying everything in his path. Aligning himself with Dick Slater, the Mad Dog eventually gets into a feud with Hacksaw Jim Duggan, which we already discussed. More on the Mad Dog coming in the next several episodes. But Roman, I got to ask, is there anything you want to add about the mad dog Buzz Sawyer?
0: Oh, gee, he is somebody that I have said since the show came out that they need to do a dark side of the ring on Buzz Sawyer.
1: My God, just, I never even uh,
0: thought of that. Supposedly, he was a drug runner with Billy Jack and for him to die at such an early age. Uh, I remember hearing years ago that he was on his front lawn with the shirt off, found dead, you know, just there's just so many things about buzz. And then you find out what a scumbag he was that he ripped uh, Magnum TA off for TA paid him to train him, And buzz took off with his money. Supposedly screwed over the undertaker, right. Uh tremendous talent, fun to watch, just an absolute psycho. And I mean, legitimately hurting enhancement talents, you know, guy workers giving them power slams on the concrete, you know, and uh, rubbing their face into the mat. Just, no respect for his opponent, you know? I mean, he was fun to watch, but as a person, wow, he left a lot to be desired.
1: Yeah, and it's so amazing what you could get away with back then and still have a job if you were still good at what you did, best way, best exactly. way I can word it, you know what I mean? And Buzz Sawyer, and it's not a shock that he got jobs at times with guys like Ole Anderson and Bill Watts, who were very old school and self well, maybe not self-professed, but very well-known as uh, bullies as well by others.
0: Yeah, and uh crazy thing about Buzz is... <laughs> he always looked older than what he was. I mean, yeah. he seemed like he looked old from the get go. I mean, I've got some Georgia DVDs from 79 when he actually had a little hair. Right. But once he started to lose his hair and then, then when you find out he died, he was, I think 29, 30 years old, something like that. And you're like, that's all he was. He, yeah, it's, He just it's, seemed like he was always much older.
1: Yeah. I want to, I, I could be wrong. I want to say like 32. Cause I was just looking up stuff on buzz the other day, but yeah, that's still young. And that's, I mean, yeah, definitely. I mean, you would have guessed 32 here at least at least 32 when he was doing this shit with Duggett. Yeah, exactly. You start doing the math and you figure out how old he was when he was working Tommy Rich. My God, they, they were just breaking into the business. Yeah. And
0: you know, it's amazing when you think about talented guys like a Bobby Eaton, uh, Gordy and Hayes, you know, were 21 and 20 or 20 and 19, you know, like, like my gosh, some of these guys were stars, like just barely out of high school, yeah.
1: you know, it's incredible. Yeah, people don't realize, like, Michael Hayes, like, he retired. Everybody's like, oh, he's past his prime. He was, like, 32, 33-ish when he, like, stopped wrestling full-time back in 92. I mean, that's he's past his prime at, like, 32 years of age. But, yeah, Michael Hayes got to start at a young age. But Gordy started at, like, 14, something like that?
0: Right. Yeah, yeah. in the in the IWA, the, uh, yeah. he lied about his age, I believe. There was a match, I think, on YouTube against Ernie Ladd, and he was, like, 14 years old wrestling under his real name
1: of Terry Mecca. Yeah. Good stuff. So we'll move on. We talked about Buzz Sawyer. Let's talk about Dick Slater and his valet, Dark Journey, making her wrestling debut here in the Mid-South. Slater shows up at the same time as Buzz Sawyer does at that September TV taping. He will have a valet and his real-life girlfriend at the time, Dark Journey, by his side, immediately played up as this hot free agent that has come to the Mid-South territory due to it having the best competition. Slater also sometimes teaming with Buzz Sawyer, they establish that there's some sort of friendship there, though we'll learn in 1986 there's no honor among thieves. Slater portrayed as the leader of that partnership, if you will. After initially refusing to take the 50 grand bounty on the head of Butch Reed, we find out it's all a ruse as Dick Slater aids the nature boy Ric Flair in a spike pile driver attempting to break the neck of hacksaw Butch Reed. And upon Reed's return, it's Dick Slater granted North American title matches against the champion. Butch Reed wanting revenge.
0: Yeah, Reed and Slater had some great stuff. And uh, it's just amazing when you put the right people together, what good can come of it, you know? And Reed and Slater were a good combination. Reed and Murdoch, like, there were just so many guys, but it was just such a different era back then because guys had to learn their craft before they got thrown into the the limelight. And uh, it, it shows when you put the right people in the right spots, the right angles, like, you can have magic.
1: Yeah, so Buzz Sawyer was completely batshit crazy. Dick Slater was only halfway there in 1986, so he was able to kind of rein Buzz Sawyer in a little bit, kind of be the leader of that little group. And that worked out so well here, that pairing does, heading into the new year, because Buzz Sawyer's feuding with Hacksaw, Jim Duggan, and Dick Slater's feuding with Hacksaw, Butch Reed. So we get a lot of tag team matches here at the end of 85 between Slater and Sawyer against the Hacksaws.
0: Yeah, and I I still remember that magazine cover of I think it was Wrestling Review of Reed and Duggan shaking hands and just hearing about the Hacksaws forming a team. It was just, it was so much fun.
1: Unfortunately, it won't last much longer heading into 1986, but another name that will be back here at the beginning of 1986. Remember, he's been quote unquote suspended for the last 45 days. I'm talking about Captain Redneck Dick Murdoch. He's been around this territory off and on for seemingly ever both as a babyface and as a heel, spent some time as a babyface here in 85 as the North American champion before losing the title to fellow babyface Butch Reed, thus losing his opportunity as the number one contender for Ric Flair's world title. And with Reed taken out with that neck injury, Murdoch felt, like we already discussed, he was the number one contender for the NWA title. But when Ted DiBiase was named the challenger, that's when jealousy reared his ugly head. Murdoch, raging with jealousy, turns heel, and attempts to cripple Ted DiBiase with that brain buster on the concrete. And like we said, the double turn in effect, DiBiase now a babyface, but Dick Murdoch walking into 86 as a heel.
0: Murdoch was one of those guys, I honestly didn't care what side of the fence he was on. I was going to be a Dick Murdoch fan, whether it was heel or babyface. Tremendous talent, you know, and you look at somebody like that with a beer belly and whatnot, I've seen him throw a standing dropkick. He was really athletic. He could do the athletic serious stuff and then he could also do the comedy stuff which most old school fans probably didn't appreciate <laughs> i know some of the old school murdoch wrestlers just,
1: didn't appreciate it either
0: <laughs> yeah and i I've, I've heard that was part of the thing that held him back from being considered a serious nwa champion right you know possibility because he was a little too comical but when he wanted to get serious murdoch could work
1: yeah, if you go back and watch some of Murdoch's stuff in Japan, from specifically from the '70s, he'll get a guy down on the mat in a headlock or head scissors, and he'll start singing songs or telling jokes. I mean, he's just having a blast out there, just doing whatever he does best. But again, he could be serious when he wanted to be. It just never knew which Murdoch you were gonna get. And I agree with you. I was always a huge Murdoch fan, either side of the fence, face or heel. It didn't matter to me. I just loved seeing him on the screen. And I think back. I did a project covering all of the NWA in 1989 and Murdoch was in and out a couple times throughout that year, but he has this match at the end of 89. I want to say around November against Lex Luger for the U S title on TV goes about 20 minutes, mm-hmm. just, out, just a hidden gem out of the middle of nowhere. Phenomenal match.
0: Exactly. And when you said 1989, I thought you were going to mention the fact that him and Slater were teaming as the hardliners. Oh, that's uh Ninety one. I thought they had the po- 91. I'm sorry. But Murdoch, no, I thought, had the potential to be a great, great tag team. It was very short lived. You know, they attacked the yeah. Steiners and, you know, they, nothing really came of it.
1: Well, outside of the uh, silly gear that they put them in, which I, I get the gimmick, the hardliners out on the working docks and whatever. But I agree with you when I saw those two paired up, I thought instant top heel tag team right there. I mean, it just writes itself.
0: Yeah. Exactly. It it really is a shame. It's it's one of those tag teams that what could have been, you know, I, I think of that with bad attitude, Bobby Eaton and Steve Kern, like, my gosh, and they've been given the right push, uh, how phenomenal they could have been, you know, they were both a little up there in age at that time, right. you know, in their wrestling career, but man, what could have
1: been? Wow, there's another blast from the past. Bad attitude. I remember them teaming up and I never put two and two together, even though they were two of my favorite teams of all time, the fabulous ones and the Midnight Express. I guess it just wasn't clicking for me, like, uh, as far as their their past association with Stan Lane. And one night, I'm listening to Radio WWF back then, and somebody calls in, and Stan Lane's one of the co-hosts, and they say, Stan Lane, your former two partners are teaming up over in WCW. What do you think about that? And and Stan goes, what can I say? Not much. You know, and he has a laugh about it or whatever. Of course, he's friends with both guys, and he's just having a, having a fun time going on about it. but. I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. That was, you know, Lane's two tag team partners. But it was just so cool. I thought they were going to get pushed. They come out with their little flashy jackets and the bow ties, like little cheap man's uh, fabulous ones here in the 1990s. But, yeah, I thought they right. could have done more. I think they could have done more with them.
0: Well, that was shows how bad the year 1994 was for WCW, you know, yeah. when they get – two great tag team wrestlers. They have them in a team and then what do they do? They have them lose to a tag team called thunder and lightning, you know, yeah. which went nowhere and just, yeah. uh, but, but we're, we're, we're not here to talk about NWA. Sorry. I'm getting <laughs> sidetracked.
1: No, but we're talking about some of the talent from here. So it kind of, it kind of works in the, the, there, but uh, Bobby Eaton from the eighties, uh, Steve Kern's going to be here in the mid South. So we're, we're all right. <laughs> we'll cheat a little bit, but we'll move on. And I want to talk a little bit to you about the Lord humongous character and specifically this particular Lord Humongous here in the Mid-South, there have been a few Humongouses over the time, from Mike Stark, Gary Nation, even Sid Vicious portrayed the character at one point. The gimmick and name were based off the Mad Max 2, the Road Warrior film, with little changes to the movie character as far as the looks go here in the ring. Humongous wearing what fans may know as the Demolition-style outfit with the, the black straps and the spikes, also a hockey mask on his face, Typically played by a large, intimidating physical specimen, no different here in the Mid-South than with Jeff Van Camp. And like most crazy gimmicks, the humongous character started in the Memphis Territory back in 1984 with Mike Stark under the mask, but it was borrowed by Southeastern, Continental, Alabama, whatever you want to call it, and Jeff Van Camp. Then under the mask in January of 1985, Van Camp brings the gimmick here to the Mid-South in august of 85 and joel watts makes this awesome music video with humongous walking through this machine shop or steel factory or junkyard i'm not sure what the fuck it was but what sold me was the video was set to the tune of kiss's war machine long before taz did it it's kind of hard
0: not to like somebody that comes when they're playing that type of music i mean what a freaking great song that was
1: yeah it works so well with the character like it's a war machine coming to kill everyone.
0: Yeah, and I, I still picture when you say in that, uh, him in the factory or warehouse. <laughs> or I can just still picture the video all these years later.
1: Yeah, walking through there half naked as these guys are welding. Just an amazing sight, Lord Humongous. No reason whatsoever. Just walking through this this steel factory or whatever it was.
0: Uh, it's wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can make just about anything make sense if you try
1: hard enough. That's what I want to hear. The cowboy defend. I want him to explain that one. <laughs> if Talk anybody can it. do it, Bill watch good. <laughs> I agree. I just want to hear it. I want to hear the explanation. So humongous comes in, immediately comes in and destroys the competition on TV with his Shinomaki, the Cobra clutch finisher, and goes right into title matches on the House shows, receiving matches against the North American champion Dick Murdoch. Humongous joins the stable of Sir Oliver Humperdink, team Some with the nightmare And later on, also with Nord the Barbarian, he gets into this feud with Jake the Snake Roberts in the fall, no selling the DDT due to that hockey mask, which was a hell of a sight the first time I saw that. But uh, gone by the beginning of 86 is Jeff Van Camp to go into law enforcement and raise a family. Humongous for being as green as he should have been at this time in his career. I thought he got the hang of things pretty fast and he didn't look bad for a guy that size. A lot of guys that size, they can look pretty bad.
0: Yeah, he, he seemed to uh, gravitate towards it and uh, do okay. You know, like you said, guys that size oftentimes aren't uh, real coordinated. You can't help but think of somebody like uh, El Gigante or somebody like that. Like, oh, let's right. just get a big guy and make him a monster.
1: Like, no, he, he actually didn't embarrass himself. You know, I've definitely seen worse. You know, he, he's not one of those guys that quietly wrestled for five, six, seven years, didn't make a name for themselves, and then they're handed this if you go back and look, he wasn't in the business all that long before they say they gift him and say, "You're Lord Humongous," and he does a pretty good job with it. So kudos to Jeff Van Camp. You know, Arn Anderson on his podcast, he stated that Jeff's wife wasn't thrilled about the business, and Jeff often stated to Arn down in down in Alabama that he knew his time was short in the business. So he went on to have a long career as a high-ranking police officer down in Pensacola. His son, Jeff Van Camp Jr., was also a pretty good college quarterback down in Florida. So. There's a story of a guy who got out of the business in his quote unquote prime, so to speak, and and did right with his life. Yeah,
0: and you know who knows what would have happened if he would have been a huge star, or he could have ended up crippled. I mean, we'll, we'll never know, you know. But uh, it, it is interesting to to think back, like what could have been.
1: Yeah, it's it really is what could have been. What else could they done? Could they have done with him? do he have started doing those jobs? Was he going to go to another territory? Would he have ever made it to the big leagues, given a gift or given a gimmick? That's specifically ripped off of a movie. I don't know if it could have made it any further, but yeah, it's just sad to see him go. But at least, you know, like I said, he retires in law enforcement. He's got several sons. I guess they're all pretty, pretty well off as far as, you know, they had good lives and things like that. So at least, you know, if he left to go raise a family, good job to him, I guess, the best I can say.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and, like you know, he didn't end up in a wheelchair. He didn't end up crippled oh, right. or, you know, like so so many of these wrestlers end up dead at the age of 40, you know, with the lifestyle they live. So, you know, like you said, kudos to him.
1: All right, Roman, here's one I really want to pick your brain. I want to get your response to this. One. The Nightmare, also known throughout 1985 as the champion, it's the masked Randy Colley, the masked Moondog Rex, if you will, arrives in April as an associate of Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert wins the North American title from Terry Taylor in May, which had me scratching my head, I gotta admit. He's renamed the champion at that point, makes sense, I suppose, but drops the belt to Dick Murdoch in August and goes back to being called the Nightmare, which is a little confusing, but whatever. And during this period, he also turns on Eddie Gilbert to align himself with Oliver Humperdinck, but eventually Eddie joins the group anyway. Even more confusion, I know. He's unmasked by Jake Roberts in late August and begins teaming with hot stuff, winning the tag team titles abruptly from Cooley and Perez in November, but they drop the belts to Dr. Death and DiBiase on December 26th, a match that the Nightmare no-showed. He was replaced by Dick Murdoch that night. You know, I can't confirm it, but I've read that once Collie got his notice that he was being let go, that he began no-showing some of the dates there for a little bit in December, including the night of the title loss. Now, I just can't see that being the case because I don't see the Cowboy allowing you back for the next several weeks at the beginning of 86.
0: Yeah, that would be weird. He, uh, Watts was very strict, a disciplinarian. You know, you didn't show up late to a TV taping. Uh, they joke about all the fines that Buddy Landell had. And, you know, Watts wasn't afraid to fine people and put the fear of God in them. So, yeah, that doesn't sound like something he would do, let, let a guy miss continuous uh, house shows or whatnot and then just bring them back like nothing happened.
1: All right, now i got to ask you. He wins the North American title. What were you thinking? That was a shock.
0: <laughs> it, it was, uh, it was, did not see that coming. Let's put it that way. I did not see where they were going with it. Uh, like you said, he turned on Andy Gilbert, then him and him and Gilbert T. It was almost like they didn't know what to do with him. Even looking back now, all these years later, it was like, wow, he was really the North American champion.
1: So in 2023, and you said, looking back now, you, you're still, wow. But, When you watch this, like, let's say you watched it in the last couple years or or whatever, are you not wondering, isn't there uh, 10 other guys on this roster right now that would easily make a better North American? Like, what was going on in Bill Watt's mind to give Moondog Rex the title? Because this guy lacked the charisma. I mean, he was okay in the ring, but he'd really ballooned up here uh, in 1985 as well. So he wasn't even at the smaller size he had been at certain times in his career Uh, Randy Colley had never really went past the middle of the card anywhere he'd ever been, even in the smaller territories like a Knoxville or an Alabama outside of the Moondogs gimmick anyway.
0: You nailed it. I mean, you could have probably threw 10 names in a hat and picked somebody that would have been more believable, or you could have at least understood the rationale of picking somebody else as a North American and didn't understand it then, don't understand it now.
1: Yeah, I just remember the first time I saw that, I was like, this guy? The hell's going on around Uh, here?
0: You took the words right out of my mouth. That's what I thought, too.
1: <laughs> uh, we'll talk about uh, one of uh, the Nightmare's associates throughout 85. That's Hot Stuff, Eddie Gilbert. He arrived to the Mid-South in April of 85, aligning himself with the Nightmare. Gilbert acted as a manager and, to a lesser extent, a wrestler. And thus, he was never really given a push too high up the card here in 1985. Eventually, though, screwed by Oliver Humperdink and his former friend, the Nightmare, Gilbert, briefly becomes a de facto babyface feuding with his former partner, The Nightmare, in the late summer, early fall, before inexplicably joining the group. I suppose if you can't beat them, join them. I don't really know what else the story was there. And they'd ultimately become tag team champions, defeating Cooley and Perez in November, although obviously transitional champs as Cooley was leaving the promotion. And they put the belts back on DiBiase and Dr. Death heading into the new year. And Eddie Gilbert, well, we'll see what happens here at the beginning of 1986. But really odd use of hot stuff throughout this year.
0: And Eddie Gilbert was always a favorite of mine. Great wrestling mind. He just he didn't have the size, but damn, he was good in the ring, got good promos. I was always a big fan of Eddie Gilbert. You know, I, I thought the guy had something, you know. He knew how to get under people's skin, such a great heel. You know, of course, he could have been a babyface. you know, that had they tried to go that way with him for a long period of time, you know. But to me, he found his niche as a heel, and I was just always – impressed with eddie gilbert
1: yeah eddie was another guy i always backed i always loved no matter face or heel i thought he was finally going to get a big push there at the beginning of 89 in the nwa and then the bookers change and eddie's kind of moved down the card and back into that managerial role sometimes wrestler role there in 89 you know i even popped when he came into global i was like yes finally get some eddie gilbert back on my tv that didn't last too long and then he shows up in smoky mountain wrestling which was pretty damn cool I'm like, oh, that's great. Eddie Gilbert's back. Like, every couple of years, he just reappears, you know? And uh, unfortunately, you know, he knows shows a couple shows there, goes down to Puerto Rico and passes away. We'd never see him again. But it was always fun seeing hot stuff on my TV screen. And uh, just, it was so odd here in 85, watching the evolution of the the general Eddie Gilbert and hot stuff Eddie Gilbert here throughout the year. He was a manager. He was a wrestler. He was a heel. He was a face. He was a heel. It's like, sometimes they just didn't know what they were going to do with him.
0: Yeah, and you know when you when you mentioned Smokey, I remember the TV match he had against Ricky Morton, where he beat him by pulling his tights, and I think he had one hand on the ropes, and then he does an interview with Jim Ross, and he goes, "I beat him right in the middle of the ring with the Luthez Press," and it was just such typical heel, you know, lying right to your face when you right. just saw it on TV what really happened. It was just it, it was just comical to me.
1: Yeah, another great guy that just passed away too early. Oh,
0: yeah. Yeah. I remember when my buddy Rick Carter, who has passed away, used to do a wrestling radio show, and he had told me about Eddie Gilbert passing away. And I go, oh, my gosh, another one just way, way too young.
1: Yeah. You know, you have to wonder what he what he could have done with his mind moving forward. Everybody always gave Eddie credit as a booker. Obviously, he gets his shot here just so he doesn't jump with Missy to the WWF. Now, that didn't work out anyway. In early part of 87 but eddie gilbert gets the book for watts he books in alabama he books the ecw he books a little bit everywhere and always some really intriguing stuff
0: yeah and who can forget when he ran over jerry lawler you know like gilbert was involved in some great angles you know the burial of uh of watts you know trying to burying him under the russian flag and right. i remember when the mass superstar put the neck breaker on him on, on the outside you know in yeah. the wwf, WWF 82 yeah. and they right they sold it like like Gilbert would never wrestle again, you know, and just he was involved in some really big angles when you stop and think about it.
1: Yeah, he was just always, he was like Forrest Gump. He was just always there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the Masked Superstar. I'm talking about Bill Eadie, the future Demolition Axe. Just getting started here in December of 85 for Mid-South. Big plans ahead for him, it would seem, that we'll get into next time as we head into 1986. But I'm excited. Wasn't sure how Eadie would fit in here in the Mid-South at this time period but he's one of my favorite heels of all time. Loved him in Georgia. Love a lot of his stuff prior to this run. He just seemed out of place in the Mid-South, which is odd because he was a good worker.
0: Oh, mass superstar. Without a doubt, one of my all-time favorites. Mm -hmm. Um, His promos, you know, and and Gordon Soley would always talk about how intelligent he was. You know, he he didn't sound like the typical heel that would just come out and scream, but there was intensity. And uh, yeah, I've always been a big fan of his, and he was on my bucket list of, wrestlers that I've never met that I wanted to. And I finally met him, you know, a couple of years ago and just super nice guy. And I was there in attendance at the showboat when he made his AWA debut. And I'm not going to lie. I popped, I marked out big time. <laughs> I was probably the only guy in the whole arena rooting for the heel. And when superstar ran in and attacked Brunzel and was part of Sheik's army, Oh, my gosh, what a great memory that was.
1: Yeah, and he was a different kind of heel when he came to New York for the WWF. Like, that was the one heel that I wanted. I wanted him to beat Bob Backlund for that title. Unfortunately, he was just a couple months off.
0: And I wanted him to beat Hogan, you know? just like, Superstar, just, he's somebody that, if you had a friend over and you were watching wrestling, look at him and go, oh, this phony guy, man, he looked look like he would beat your ass, you know? Yeah, and the way he deal. talked and... Yeah, he he was In in real life, he was
1: so quiet, soft spoken, and humble. He's such a great guy. You know, I don't really collect a whole lot of stuff outside of like maybe old magazines, programs, something like that. But one specific wrestler that I wanted something that was the mask superstar. I have two of his masks. He signed them both for me. Uh, Really cool stuff.
0: Wow. Yeah. I. One of the times I met him, I asked about the windbreaker he had that would actually have his logo on it. Oh, yeah, I love that thing. I had a guy that used
1: to make his stuff offer to make me one of those years back. I wish I had taken him up on it.
0: Oh my gosh. Yeah. I I asked him, I go, and I'm not into the memorabilia per se. Like I'll get autographs or eight by tens, but I'm not one of those guys that has to have Rick Rude's boots or or anything like that. When I met, when I met superstar, I asked him about the windbreaker and he goes, gosh, I wish I had, I says, I will, if you find one, you know, here's my card. I I will buy one. That that is one thing I would definitely want.
1: Oh my God. Yeah. Those, those things were badass.
0: Yeah. So, and, and he's he's one of the guys too that not that just something i i thought of a while back was he was one of the guys that was successful as both a masked man and with face paint yeah,
1: and you got, think about it there's not many people that've done that the no, grappler did he, it but there's not many no, i agree with you and and what, what that's what really helped his career he you know he first started off as a mongol so he had that run there for a little while mm-hmm. as a mongol and then he goes on to do the mask superstar gimmick which was my favorite possible well, i love demolition too i gotta admit i was a kid growing up back Mm. in those days so i I had to love demolition but you you realize like maybe the superstar thing's starting to dwindle there's really no territories left vince isn't going to bring him back so demolition is born and he has a whole new resurgence as a brand new character on top i mean their pop when they win the title the tag titles for the third time at wrestlemania six easily a top five pop that i can remember to this day even though
0: it wasn't my favorite gimmick i was happy to see him as one of the machines when he came in and I heard his voice, I go, that's a mass superstar. You know, like it was just, it, it was just always cool to see him.
1: So he didn't fool you with his uh, Japanese. <laughs> no,
0: his no, that, that, that voice kind of gave it away. <laughs> I knew it was him.
1: <laughs> All right, we'll, uh, we'll move on. We'll look at a tag team here, brother tag team, sometimes babyface, sometimes a heel, but there were heels here at the beginning of 85. I'm talking about Hector and Chavo Guerrero, who were in the Mid-South early in 85, listen to this. They were working, and yes, guys, these existed in the Mid-South way back when. There's a few of these on tape out there, or on video, I should say, nowadays. A four-corners elimination match between the Guerreros, the Rock and Roll Express, the Midnight Express, and the Fantastics. Unbelievable.
0: Yeah, I I remember the Dirty White Boys being in a four-corner match. The Road Warriors. The Road Warriors, yes. yes. The the Mid-South did that. They were kind of innovative in that
1: way. Yeah, you know, the first time I ever saw one wasn't until uh, Paul Lee did it in-, in ECW. But to realize they did it in Mid-South, I was like, wow, with those teams, unbelievable. And like you said, the Dirty White Boys were part of some of them, the roadies. So it was really cool stuff. Now, the Guerreros, they're gone from the Mid-South by the end of February 85 when Chavo leaves for All Japan. But they would continue to work for the Houston portion of the territory, which was promoted by Paul Bosch, but featured Bill Watts's talent at this point, based on a promoting agreement between the two promoters. So as baby faces in Houston, they've been feuding with the fabulous Ones, Stan Lane, Steve Kern as of late. Chavo will return to the Mid-South here full-time in December of 85, and they'll stick around for basically all of 1986 as well. But the, the Guerreros, man, they were great, and the entire time they were gone from Mid-South in 85, they were still working in Houston and places like that, and I love their stuff down there in Houston.
0: Yeah, I remember they had uh, Steve Kern wrestle in a singles match against uh, Chavo, and a loser gets painted yellow. And uh, yeah, right. lots of lots of good stuff with the Guerreros. You know, Chavo was a junior heavyweight champion in Japan, and uh, and I remember in '86 he teamed a lot. He, like you said, he was on the babyface side. He teamed with the Missing Link uh, off and on, and uh, yeah, very very underrated worker. Chavo Guerrero was.
1: Yeah, Chavo was always one of the. I was like, who is this hidden gem? Because when I watched growing up. Chavo never really was on uh JCP. Chavo never really was in the WWF, even though he was for a little bit, never made it to TV. Before he was gone, he, he claimed sabotage. But Chavo Guerrero, I always wondered why was this guy not he was my favorite Guerrero of the original three guys. Don't get all hot on me with Eddie. But Chavo was easily by far <laughs> better than Mondo or Hector. And Hector was pretty fun in Memphis. He was a pretty good heel. But Chavo just yes, he, he was the best worker and talker. Everything, the, the the total package, if you will, of those original three Guerrero boys. And I just always wanted to see more of Chavo. So anytime I could get a tape when I was, you know, back in the 90s when we were trading tapes and all this stuff, anytime there was Chavo matches, I, I would just watch them over and over. Just, there was a lot of moves he would do that we just wouldn't see all the time back then, too. But then you learn that Chavo was maybe his own worst enemy. I mean, he even got fired as Chavo Classic when he was, like, Cruiserweight Champion or wherever that was in the WWE. So, I mean, he's, he's done it from t- uh, time and time again. We're actually, actually, I got some notes here coming up in Houston, some things that he, he does that maybe he shouldn't have done after a matchup involving, I think it was that yellow, the, the yellow paint match you were talking about. We'll talk about that next time we uh, get on the air together. But, uh, yeah, man, Chavo Guerrero was just something else. Hector was fine. He, nothing wrong with him. A solid worker. Just unfortunate that Chavo was his brother. So Hector, to me, just wasn't, you know, wasn't as good. Although, you know, he got to be Lasertron and the gobbledygooker.
0: the goblin. i still can't help but laugh about that so one of the biggest disappointments in the history of wrestling
1: yeah yeah well for vince anyway you know according to bruce pritchard though when he when when he comes out of the shell i can't believe i'm saying this but when he comes out of the shell and the crowd boos vince turns to bruce and goes ha ha they hate him this is great pal like i don't know (laughs) only vince mcmahon
0: (laughs) oh jeez
1: so we'll, we'll move on here. We'll talk about Dirty Dutch Mantel. He starts off the 85 year in Memphis, but he heads down to the Mid-South in April, defeats the Snowman for the TV title. There's a name for the past. In July, as the Snowman leaves the company in another failed JYD replacement attempt, Dutch Mantel proves to be a transitional TV champion, however, dropping the belt less than two weeks later to Hacksaw Butch Reed. Now Dutch then paired himself with fellow Memphis legend, superstar bill dundee they worked the summer against the fantastics teaming up with dundee into the fall before the superstar leaves in the month of september but dutch he sticks around another six weeks here doing jobs and he's also gone by the beginning of november so we won't see dutch mantel here too much in 1986 but he was here for a lot of
0: 1985 yeah dutch was somebody i always enjoyed you know um He was never going to be the upper echelon, you know, in my opinion, but he was somebody that definitely had a place on the card. You know, guys like him and Bill Irwin and, you know, guys like that, they had their spot. And uh, later on, I I actually liked Dutch on the mic, you know, in Smoky Mountain. I, I thought he did a good job.
1: Yeah. And when Dutch didn't care anymore, and I'm not saying that like he really didn't care. I mean, when he realized that he was no longer going to be the focal point as a wrestler and he became an announcer and he just didn't really care what he said anymore, he was tremendous in Smoky Mountain. Hilarious in Smoky Mountain at times.
0: Yeah, when he would start off the show and he'd be holding a sign and it would have an arrow pointed at Bob
1: Cottle and it would say something like I'm with Stupid or, right. you know, <laughs> he would just have like little goofy things. It was it was it was fun. But Dutch, you know, going back to his, his prime wrestling years, and he was always on top in Memphis because they kind of had a, a lackluster undercard a lot of the times, but Dutch could work whereas guys like maybe like a Bill Irwin really, you know, I never really got into Bill Irwin beyond a certain degree, because he was more of a kick-and-punch guy, a headlock guy. Dutch Mantel could give you a good match. You knew you could have a, a good wrestling match. So, yeah, I didn't really buy him as a main eventer, especially here in something like Mid-South. But at the same time, you knew if he was in the ring, it was going to be a competitive and, and fun little match.
0: Yeah, he he could hold his own. He could, he could uh, make a competitive match with just about anybody, and that's something I always liked about Dutch.
1: All right, guys, we're getting down to the nitty-gritty, as Gorilla Monsoon would say at this point. We're going to look at one more name here on the heel side. They're going to talk a couple other things here before we get out this week. And the last name on my list here, unless you can think of anybody else, is El Corsario. That's the future TNT in Puerto Rico, the future Quang and Savio Vega in the WWF. I had never seen the El Corsario character until 2002 when the Universal Wrestling Archives became available. And I knew he was somebody familiar the minute I saw him. Couldn't put my finger on it right away. But after a couple of days, When I figured out who it was, I was like, holy shit, that's Savio Vega here in 1985.
0: Yeah, Savio Vega, who has a victory over Stone Cold Steve Austin back when he was the ringmaster.
1: So I did a little digging. Uh, You know, I, I look up things like this. I don't know why. Don't ask me why, Roman. But the translation for the name Corsario means a privateer. He is a private person or ship that engages in maritime warfare under the commission of war. I wrote whatever that means. Kind of an odd name, huh? (laughs) Well, well, see, you taught me something I didn't know. So I haven't watched his shoot, Savio Vega's shoot, I mean, his shoot interview. So I have no idea how he wound up here in the Mid-South in 1985. Seems very random because I can't find anything that he did before this. So I'm thinking he wasn't working for Carlos Colon yet, but he was working some of them outlaw promotions in Puerto Rico. But he shows up here in the month of August and gone by mid-November And underneath heel, he debuts with some TV squash wins, but begins losing on the house shows to essentially anyone with any real merit. Still an intriguing run here. Savio Vega randomly popping up in the United States in the mid-1980s. And he doesn't return that I can think of until he's Quang.
0: See, now you got me wanting to go watch my Savio Vega shoot. Am I going to have to go dig that out and watch that and see see how he came to Mid-South now?
1: Well, if you do, you have to let us know. (laughs)
0: I will. I will. I will let everybody know if I pop that in.
1: Yeah, I'm very curious. I mean, I could have done it too. I just did so much other research. I never got around to it. I do apologize, but I'm intrigued how he wound up. It's got to be a friend of a friend. They suggested bringing him in and, you know, stick him under the hood and away we go. And it's kind of worked out the same way. You know, Scott Hall went down to Puerto Rico, got his gimmick over down there, finally figured himself out after years in the business came up and did Razor Ramon and he kept putting in a good word until finally Quang gets hired. I don't know that he was happy with the gimmick, but I think he did okay with Savio Vega. Yeah, yeah, I'll agree with that. So the NWA World Championship. Now, Bill Watts is pretty proud. He says this on TV all the time. He's not an affiliate of the National Wrestling Alliance because he doesn't believe in some of the things that they do. However, for some odd reason, the NWA World Champion Rick Flair keeps coming to town here at the tail end of 1985, becoming a prominent figure in the mid-south region in recent months we've seen Rick Flair defend his title against Dick Murdoch, Butch Reed, Ted DiBiase, Jake the Snake Roberts, Terry Taylor, and more to come as we get going with
0: 1986. Flair, the NWA champion traveling to a territory just it just always created excitement. I mean like we talked about earlier with the Flair DiBiase and Murdoch getting jealous and uh it it made the regional titles much more important than just knowing that Flair would be coming to town to defend against the area's top champion.
1: So tell, tell me, Roman, I don't know if you've, you've heard anything about this. I, I understand Bill Watts' deal that he didn't want to be part of the NWA. He's explained that at length in the past, not just in the Mid-South, the old TV shows, but in his shoot interviews and things like that. I, I understand financially and otherwise why Bill Watts didn't want to be part of the governing body of the NWA. However, have you ever heard his reasoning why or how uh, he was still able to work and get Ric Flair to, quote unquote, defend the NWA title there down in his territory.
0: The only thing I could think of is, you know, may, maybe the NWA that they looked at it hey, wherever Flair goes, the houses are going to be big. I'm sure they were getting a, a good size cutback or something of it. Uh, yeah, it, it's kind of weird because, you know, Watts did want to have his own individual thing going on, but then when Flair came, he would promote Flair like he was the second coming.
1: And, you know, I have to wonder, with Flair popping up so often here leading into 1986, you have to think there was some kind of deal in place uh, with Crockett coming to town, that joint show coming up the Crockett Cup at the Superdome.
0: Yeah, yep. And uh, then a lot of times it would almost be like little scouting missions because uh, if memory serves correct, it was it Flair that saw the Rock and Roll Express and then went back to Crockett and said, hey, you got to go
1: get these guys. Right. Yeah. And he did that, I think, a couple of times with a couple of names. And, uh, you know, unfortunately for Bill Watts, uh, the money was uh, maybe better. or I'm not really sure how that all worked out. Although, you know, I hear the rock and rolls got ripped off uh, quite a bit with their merchandise over there in Crockett.
0: I, I've heard that, too. You know, the I remember they had some kind of promotion where you can get a cassette tape and a poster and a this and for $20 and be part of the fan club <laughs> and Right. Yeah. Supposedly the, the rock and rolls either got nothing
1: or got very little. Just unfortunate that, you know, get away with those things back in the day. But we we'll, we'll, we were talking about Ric Flair and we'll see more of Ric Flair here leading into 86. And speaking of more, plenty more talent headed in over the next couple of months, from the fabulous ones to the sheep herders, Coco Ware, Kelly Koniski will be in as the mask superstar. Number two, so many more we're going to be talking about. Uh, but before we get out of here, I just wanted to address, there's a lot of the job guys you're going to hear us mention quite a bit as we start talking about TV. Uh, there's names like Mark Strong, Ricky Starr, who I believe was from the uh, old Convertible Blondes in the ICW Pafo territory, uh, Tiger Bill Tab going to come through here, Jimmy Backlund, the future Jimmy Del Rey, Steve Constance, Ron Sexton, Nick Patrick, yes, the referee and the son of Jody Hamilton, assassin number two, Ken Timms of Fabuloso Blondie fame. Uh, we're going to be talking about J.R. Hogg, Tommy Wright, Steve Dahl, future tag star with Rex King, also well done in the WWF. But then there's some other names that some may recognize and some may not. One of those names was the brother of Robert Gibson, the older brother of Robert Gibson, Ricky Gibson.
0: Yeah, Ricky was a Ricky was a great talent. You know, I saw a lot of his stuff in Memphis, and yeah, he was definitely an asset.
1: Yeah, like Ricky Gibson. If you guys can go uh, watch any of those uh, old millimeter, eight millimeter, sixty millimeter, whatever it was, uh, the films that got transferred over and they're digitized and, and they're on YouTube and things like that of the old Memphis territory. I'm talking Jarrett, maybe even Goulis, I guess uh, Ricky Gibson was really good. He may have been better wrestling wise than Robert Gibson. Maybe he didn't have this same body as Robert Gibson here by the mid '80s. And not that Robert Gibson, you know, was Hulk Hogan, but. Ricky Gibson was just a hell of a talent in his day. Unfortunately, he sustained a very bad knee injury at one point, and it kept him out off and on for years. He just never recovered uh, fully from it, really. And I was really su- surprised when he popped up here in the Mid-South. And even Dusty Rhodes is going to give him a little work here after the Mid-South Territory as well. But really cool to see Ricky Gibson given something. And he's clearly, when you guys watch him, if you go back and watch these uh, videos, very competent in the ring. He knows what he's doing. And this is probably a good time to mention as we do these shows, guys, I have every episode of 1986 Mid-South TV, UWF TV, and Power Pro as well. As long as the WWE gods allow it, I will continue to add each and every episode of TV to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash wrestlinggrenades, so you guys can watch along, follow along with us, enjoy the year of 1986.
0: And just uh, something I was thinking about when you were talking about the enhancement talent. Right. What about Mike Boyette, who had the reverse Goldberg streak? You know, oh my God, I can't. Wait for the, yes, one hundred and
1: fifty-eight losses in a row. <laughs> Mike Boyette, you know, Michael Hayes puts him over as the as his god, the guy that got him into wrestling. Michael Hayes would go go to the shows as a teenager with Percy Pringle, John Tatum. They would sit there, and Hayes was in awe of Boyette, who was getting a huge push down there, uh, way back, you know, in the earlier seventies. And you know, unfortunately, by now Boyette's kind of uh, seen better days in the ring. And he's used as a job guy, enhancement talent, if you will, here for Bill Watts. But I can't wait to talk about that. I can't wait to talk about that. Uh, well, I wanted to call it an undefeated streak, but I guess it's a defeated streak with Mike Boyette.
0: The hippie Mike Boyette, yeah. Went to lose uh, went about 160 or something like that in a <laughs> row, according to Jim Ross's records.
1: That's right. <laughs> By God. Uh, you know, b- besides Boyette, besides Ricky Gibson, and I hate to throw Ricky in this, you know, group of guys because he's a little more than just an enhancement talent but he's on the lower card here uh some of the other guys though we're gonna see in the ring doing some jobs perry jackson the future action jackson sean o'reilly broadway joe malcolm really odd he just randomly pops up here in mid-south and i, I don't really see anything on him after it either it's like he does a couple matches for crockett before he comes here to watts and he works for watts and we just we never see him again but broadway joe malcolm in fact i googled his name the other day and he popped up in a independent show in the last year or so on YouTube. Not sure if it's the same Broadway, Joe Malcolm, but how many can there be?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I haven't heard anything other than his GWF days, you know, and and the Libyan. That's another one, too, that uh, oh, I remember was Libyan on TV every week oh, for yeah. a
1: while. So i uh, got a couple names left to throw at you here. Uh, first, uh, Gustavo Mendoza, who will leave here and head off to Puerto Rico after his run with Bill Watts to work as Gran Mendoza and Galan Mendoza. Lots of that footage is out there from the late 80s into the early 90s of Gran Mendoza, a pretty good semi-main eventer down there in Puerto Rico. But I got to tell you what, this is another guy, I can't find anything on prior to this run here, but damn, he's pretty pretty solid for uh, an enhancement worker or a preliminary guy. I mean, he's not too shabby in the ring.
0: And something I will always remember him for, and I saw it again this morning when I was going through a DVD, is he took that drop kick from Coco? That in the face. I mean, it damn near looked like it tore his head off. It was. You just have to. If you haven't seen it, do yourself a favor and look at. You just like your jaw will hit the ground when you see it.
1: All right, got a couple names left to throw at you here. You may have heard of this guy before, Roman. A guy by the name of Rob Rex Steiner. His name's going to be changed to Rick Steiner here. I'm sure you uh, may have uh, heard that name once or twice.
0: Oh yeah, it was. It was great to see him in his early early days. You know him and. Like you said, Jimmy Backlund is Jimmy Del
1: Rey. It's always good to see the superstars in the early days. Yeah, Rick Steiner, I mean, uh, basically comes in here. He didn't get his start in Mid-South per se, but he's here before too long after getting his start in the uh, professional wrestling business. And Bill Watts knows that he has a diamond in the rough. He protects Rick. Yes, Rick does a lot of jobs early on here, as he should. He's breaking into the business. He's learning as he goes. But they always made him look competent in the ring, and it isn't too long before he begins to get a push here heading into 1986. And in his name, like I said, he goes by his real name initially, Rob Rick Steiner, but it's a little too much, and it becomes Rick Steiner as we move along. But a uh, fun story, well, not a fun story, but a story about Dr. Death. And Rick Steiner we'll talk about on the next episode when we cover uh, January of 86 and, and forward. But, um, yeah, it's just really cool to see Rick Steiner here in his early days pre uh, what Bobby Heenan would refer to as earmuffs. (laughs) Yeah, I I saw him a couple times in the AWA on squash matches and Pro Wrestling USA tapings, too. Last but not least, and it's not because, well, maybe at least, I don't really know. He didn't have a long run here. There was a fellow, and I only saw this in results. I had never actually seen this guy wrestle when I was reading, going through all the 85 and the 86 results. A name that popped up repeatedly was... Oladipo. Do you remember this guy at all? Oladipo? It doesn't, does not ring a bell. No. And it didn't ring a bell to me outside of Victor Oladipo, but that's not professional wrestling. So I looked him up. I Googled the name and believe it or not, there's quite a bit out there on this guy because not because of what he did in the ring, but because what he became afterwards. So Oladipo, and I'm not going to try to pronounce his real name here. There's like eight words and it's Af- it's Nigerian. And I just have, I'm not going to butcher it. Oladipo is one of the names in this long name here. He's from um, Nigerian descent and he broke into the business. I guess uh, Ernie Ladd saw him and Ladd said, hey, buddy, you know, he was in pretty good shape, pretty muscle bound type guy. Ernie Ladd uh, talked with him in early in the early 80s, got him into the business. He worked off and on here and there, but basically shows up here in the mid south in late 85 does a few jobs, maybe a couple wins, too, on the house shows. Never makes it to TV from what I can tell, which is, I guess, why I never really knew who he was. But um, uh, he goes on in life to be a New York cab driver before his grandfather passes away and leaves him the prestige of being the king of one of the many areas in Nigeria. So this guy goes from professional wrestler to New York cab driver to one of the kings of Nigeria, but he didn't want the job. So he came back. He didn't want to be king. He said, give it to one of my brothers. And he goes back to driving a cab before they call upon him again and say, no, no. You are going to be one of the kings of one of the many areas in Nigeria there. So what an interesting life this Oladipo led. And I want you guys to do this for me. Go into your Google machine, as they call it. And he went under another name as well after this, wrestling under Ladi, the Nigerian Tiger. That's L-A-D-I. Google that. And it's going to pop up, I believe, 86, 87. A match with this guy, Oladipo, is Ladi, the Nigerian Tiger, taking on a guy by the name of the new spoiler for Wild West Wrestling, it has to be one of the very first matches of The Undertaker. So it's Depot versus uh, a very green Undertaker. Not a very good match whatsoever, but if you guys want to check him out, there it is. Wow.
0: <laughs> I had never heard of the guy, and then what you just told me? Uh, wow, what a
1: story. Yeah, I do, you know, I do my digging. Good. I try to do my due diligence and the research and just <laughs> try to make sure I cover every corner. Even for the guys, like it's like, who the hell is this? I kept seeing his name. Why doesn't he have a first name? Does nobody know? You know, So I, I just kept doing a little research, a little more, and I got all of that out of it. So very interesting, intriguing mm-hmm. character. You did a great job playing detective. <laughs> that was quite a wealth of knowledge right there. I'd never heard
0: of him, but I'm if somebody brings up that name, I'll have a little something to tell him now.
1: Yeah, very cool. Very cool stuff. Uh, so we are going to close up the show here, take one last look at a couple things. Uh, the promoter, of course, Cowboy Bill Watts, going to take the Mid-South. He's going to take it National. They're doing really well in their syndicated areas. Bill Watts going to turn the Mid-South region into the Universal Wrestling Federation here in 1986. Our announcers, more often than not, are going to be Jim Ross and the son of Cowboy Bill Watts, Joel Watts. Also, referees right now, the two specific main referees at this point, two former wrestlers themselves, the father of Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert, Tommy Gilbert, and of course, the king, Carl Fergie, if you will. Matchmaker's still Grizzly Smith here, heading into '86.
0: Yeah, Grizzly, gosh, just you hear a few things, and then you see the dark side of the episode, and oh, my gosh, wow.
1: Yeah, uh, but Grizzly, for a very long time, the right-hand man of Cowboy Bill Watts, I guess you could call him with the WWF, call the producers now an agent, but Grizzly Smith kind of oversaw the locker room.
0: Yeah, and I always remember they, Grizzly Smith saying something about a title match or something, him always mentioning Charlie Lay. I always remember that name coming out of Grizzly's mouth. Did you know that Charlie Lay was a real person? Yes, I, I found that out a while back. I oh, okay. don't know
1: if that was a <laughs> fictitious uh, figurehead, so to speak. But, yeah, I found out that it actually was a legit person. You know, many, many years ago, I thought he was. I thought it was a fictitious person cause, because we never saw him on air, ever. And then, uh, you know, right. come, to, come to find out, no, Charlie Lay existed. All right, we're going to close up. We're going to talk the titles. And uh, we're out the door here this week on regional wrestling, the tag team titles. As discussed, it's Dr. Death and Ted DiBiase, the new tag team champions, defeating the team of Eddie Gilbert and the Nightmare. No, sorry, not the Nightmare. Eddie Gilbert and Dick Murdoch on December the 26th to regain the titles. It seems the Nightmare no-showed, or maybe he was injured. Not really sure of the situation there. But Murdoch fills in, and he is feuding with DiBiase, so it makes a little sense. I'm assuming Eddie Gilbert did the job there. But Doc and DiBiase regained the tag team titles on December 26th, so they will be the champions, heading into 1986. Now, as for the Mid-South TV title, we have a tournament in play right now. Butch Reed vacating the belt back in October after winning the North American Championship. You can't hold both belts, guys. The first round began at the December 4th Irish McNeil Show, which also happens to be the final Irish McNeil Show, sadly. All good things must come to an end. With the finals, we will see Jake the Snake Roberts taking on Dick Slater. More on that next time here on Regional Wrestling. When Jake the Snake takes on Dick Slater, we're going to find out who the new TV champion will be and of course, North American champion as of right now, it's Hacksaw Butch Reed, having beaten Dick Murdoch back in October, Reed for now, feuding with Dick Slater.
0: I I was never a big fan of the no wrestler can
1: hold two belts rule. Right.
0: To me, if a guy was doing great, let him be dominant. You know, I remember when Gino Hernandez had three belts in World Class, you know, and it's just like I just always thought that was cool and I was like, so a guy accomplishes greatness as being a two two champions, and
1: he has to give one up. I, I just I never that never made sense to me. And I always saw it as a missed opportunity because if you are the TV champion or the secondary champion, and you go on to win the main title, the world title, the North American title, whatever the case may be, now you have the opportunity—not tomorrow, not next week, but maybe in a month or two—to drop that. Secondary belt to an up and comer, and an instant star is made.
0: Exactly. You know, I I, I think back when Lawler had beat Bachwinkle for the AWA Southern title in Memphis, right. mm-hmm. and that excellent just made it made the fans think that Lawler could in fact beat Bachwinkle for the actual world title. So when yeah. Bachwinkle came to town, they wanted to see it because they've seen Lawler already beat him for the Southern title, like. Like you said, so many missed opportunities by not having a guy have two belts. And they did that a few times with Taylor, with Murdoch. And then, you know, as we'll talk later on about, you know, Dick Slater having two belts,
1: you know, just missed opportunities. Roman, excellent example there with Bachwinkle and Lawler. God, you, you make me want to go watch that right now. Lawler and Bachwinkle was really good stuff. But you made a, a great point there because, like you said, they stripped Taylor of the TV belt earlier here in 85. Now they do it again with Butch Reed. And then we head into 86 there's an opportunity for Slater to become double title holder and immediately Bill Watts says at the end of the the tournament finals he goes well if Dick Slater wins the tournament here the title's going to go right back into another tournament and it was just like are you fucking are you shitting me like blowing my mind <laughs> I was thinking the same thing I'm like you've just had basically
0: <laughs> 3 3 months worth of title matches or tournament matches <laughs> right. to establish a champion and oh and if this guy wins it then we'll have another tournament and, and the thing is you know you do get occasional marquee matchups you know i remember in that tournament yeah you, ha- you had a jake versus buzz sawyer and and for the georgia mark and me that was a big deal you know like wow jake versus sawyer but fans like to kind of have an idea what they're gonna get you know in these right. tournaments and i don't know that it, to overdo the tournament you know once in a blue moon is one thing but twice in one year and then the possibility of a third time like
1: ah, too much yeah and i I did like bill uh the way they explained this particular tournament was there was first round matches and then everybody who won those matches their names went into a hat and they were pulled out so you didn't know the bracketing for the second round until you got the matches in the second round there were some weird things that went on there but it is what it is we'll save that for another day but i just uh, uh really fascinating the way bill watts booked things here but Thank God we don't, spoiler alert, guys, we don't get another tournament.
0: Yes, yes, Uh, (laughs) those are my thoughts exactly, because that would totally defeat the purpose. Why have a tournament
1: if it's just going to lead to another tournament? You know, what's the point? Unbelievable. Yeah, but luckily that doesn't happen, and we'll talk all about it next time here on the Regional Wrestling Podcast as we continue on. So we set the stage, Roman. We talked all about all the top stars, the top feuds, some of the names that brought us to the dance, but... Maybe they're on their way out of the territory. I felt like it was honorable mention to get their names here, let you know how we got to where we are as we head into 1986. You guys know the champions right now are DiBiase and Dr. Death, the tag title holders, North American champions Butch Reed, and the TV title is vacant for the moment, but not for long. We're going to talk all about all of those here next week, uh, next time on the show. So much to talk about as we begin with the month of January and move forward so much to go over. Lots of great matches, lots of great angles coming our way.
0: Oh, my gosh. What All these years later, still one of my most favorite years and promotion. That combination of UWF 86, I will love till till the day I die. Just amazing stuff going on there.
1: Yeah, and you look at the names at the top, Jake and Hacksaw and DiBiase and Dr. Death and Dick Slater and Buzz Sawyer. You look at those names, and then you realize, oh, my God, there's so many more coming in before this year is over. Oh, yeah. Like you said, you
0: know, you... You mentioned a handful of names right there that were amazing. He had the Fantastics coming in, you know, and then the Freebirds, wherever they go, there's excitement. And it's just one superstar after
1: another. Yeah, Bill Watts will come out of retirement again here in 86, maybe for the last time. He wants to get his hands on the Freebirds as well. That's going to be fun.
0: Yeah, he wants to clip
1: their wings. Uh, He brought a baseball bat to do it. That's one way to do it. It's the cowboy way anyway. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) Well, Roman, I want to say thank you so much. I really appreciate you being here on the show this week. Loved setting the stage for 1986, talking all about Mid-South Wrestling as it becomes the UWF.
0: Oh, my gosh. The pleasure was mine. I cannot thank you enough for allowing me to come on your show and to talk old-school wrestling, which I love. And it's been a blast, and I cannot thank you enough for allowing me to do this.
1: And I want to remind everybody else again real quick before we get out of here, I'm going to continue to add the Mid-South Wrestling and the Power Pro Shows to my YouTube channel so you guys can follow along and enjoy the ride with us, the promos, the angles, the matches. And as time progresses and as time permits, I'm going to add some of the stuff from Houston as well. We're going to really tackle some of that Houston stuff because some of the best matches came out of the Sam Houston Coliseum.
0: Yeah, there's lots of great stuff that unless you were able to have access to Power Pro Wrestling or lived in the Houston area... You might not have seen back in the day, you know, like in my neck of the woods, we got the regular syndicated show, you know, in 86, but we didn't get to have access to the Houston show. So to see those are are a treat, you know, I've been able to see a lot of those through tape trading and DVD trading and whatnot. And like you said, there's lots of great matches on there that we never
1: saw on the normal regular syndicated show. And uh, with our next episode, we're going to begin talking about all of that action as we begin 1986 in the Universal Wrestling Federation. So once again, one more time, Roman, I want to say thank you so much for joining the show. Looking forward to getting going with 1986.
0: Oh, I can't wait. And I wanted to thank you again, and thank you, everybody out there, for listening. And uh, hopefully, if this doesn't bring back a lot of memories and you're new to the territory, hopefully what we have to say will make you want to go out and watch the episodes and have a new appreciation for Mid-South later on becoming the Universal Wrestling Federation.
1: I couldn't have said it better myself. All right, that was a very fun edition of the show. I want to thank you again, Roman, for being here. Can't wait to have you back as we dive into the month of January and beyond here in 1986 for Bill Watts as Mid-South Wrestling, soon to be renamed the UWF, just one of many projects ongoing here as part of the Regional Wrestling Podcast. I'm doing a lot of research right now for a lot of upcoming episodes, a lot of upcoming projects here on the show. More guest co-hosts on the way as well, but for right now, it's 1986. It's the Universal Wrestling Federation. It's Roman Gomez, hoping to have him back as often as he can make it. Had a blast, had a fun time, and I hope you guys did as well. And we'll be back soon as 1986 is now upon us. We'll be looking at the semifinals and finals of the TV title tournament, who will be crowned that TV medallion champion. Plus, there's a new North American champion on New Year's Day. And who... Is the man that pins the NWA World Heavyweight Champion Ric Flair? You won't have to wait long to find out all of that and more answered next time on the Regional Wrestling Podcast, where we talk the territories.